Create an Unstoppable Life, Episode 133. Create an Unstoppable Life is all about mindset for the high achiever to help you build a life of fulfillment and freedom. I'm your host, Dina George, MD, a mindset and marketing coach and a family medicine physician. It's an honor to spend time with you today. Welcome back. It's a joy you're here. Before getting into today's episode, a change, the podcast is moving to every other week for a while to allow us both to catch up. A lot of my time is joyfully spent working on the conference. That's the Authenticity, Courage, and Empowerment Conference for Women Physicians, and it's exciting to see it come to life. Every woman physician deserves to know about this conference deserves to be in a space that's warm and supportive, deserves renewal, like renewal of your life and your career. I'd love your support in sharing the message with your friends, your colleagues, your doctors. All the info is at AuthenticPhysicians.com. Today's episode is an introduction to James Ho, a high achiever who is in the midst of transition, and he joins the podcast to share his journey to here. And he also shares his focal point, how he stays grounded and connected when he's not in achievement mode, and the unexpected learning along the way. He's warm, he's thoughtful, and in fact, he was concerned that this might not be interesting. There's no rainbows and daisies at the end of this episode because he's in the midst of transition and figuring it out now. The value is both to hear how he's approaching the process And to see that you're not alone, any transition, any size that you're making, you are not alone. We're all in some aspect of transition. And he shares how he's moving through it, even with the uncertainty of knowing where it's leading to. I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed spending time with him. Welcome. I'm so pleased to bring on James Ho. He is a fantastic connector, among other things. He is incredibly humble. He's an army veteran. He is a lawyer and many things to many people. And today the conversation is going to evolve and it's absolutely going to be incredible. So welcome and please say more about you. Yes. Well, thank you, Dina. The pre-roll, we talked about the theme being kind of transition and you know, in past conversations, I'm in a transition period right now. I think the best way to do it is talk about where I've been so far, and then we kind of see where the transition's coming. So like you had mentioned, Army Vet, I actually enlisted in July of 01, having gone through high school and kind of the nation building peacekeeping periods of the Army in July of 2001, that it would be another decade or more of the same. Two months later, in September 01, obviously everything changed. Very little peacekeeping, nation building, and we were on a completely different footing. Four years in the National Guard, concurrent with being enrolled at the University of Missouri, Graduated in December of 05, switched over to active duty commission service, and by May of 06, five months later, was in Iraq, was how quickly things had changed by then. Came back over stateside, and at about the four and a half year mark, realized that the Army probably wasn't going to be the long term. I already had two children at that point. Realized the Army wasn't going to be the long term, and figured getting out before 10 years was probably the best time to kind of rip that bandaid off and see what's next chose to go into law school because I had enlisted at 19, figured with that break, get an idea of how the real world runs and no better way to do that. Three years of learning kind of the laws that underpin 
society and everything else. During law school, I was in New Orleans. The general environment is a lot of high risk, weather, a lot of just kind of risky things. So New Orleans law is very much involved in the insurance world. So I found a role in insurance by my second year of law school, liked it enough that I ended up working, I guess, in insurance for the last nine, 10 years. Enjoyed it so far. With COVID, we kind of had a break and I had a lot more time at home. So I never took the bar after law school because I already found what I thought was a new career in 2011. But, you know, it was always kind of in the back of my mind, three years of law school, it's time to just kind of finish things out and get the license. So during COVID, I ended up taking and passing the bar, waiting on licensure now to kind of final administrative portions. So that's kind of where I'm sitting right now career-wise is having made the Army insurance and maybe another transition coming up. On the personal side, two children became four children now. And one of the considerations for what's next is we actually had a child born, a boy in 2015, fairly uneventful pregnancy up until about four weeks, eight weeks out. We ended up picking something up on one of the last ultrasounds, but couldn't really tell what it was until after he was born. Turned out that he had in utero infection of silomegalovirus, so congenital CMV, which resulted in a bunch of just kind of liver function issues initially, but outwardly it was cerebral palsy. So he does have limited motion. We ended up getting a pretty substantial surgery. It was spinal dorsal rhizotomy, which I guess is where they go in through the back and they snip some of the nerves to relax the tenseness of cerebral palsy. So he is able to walk short distances now. He can run a little bit also. He just turned six. We're definitely in a much better place emotionally, physically for him since six years before. But certainly, you know, we went through a lot of challenges initially. I mean, I think for the first six months or so, we're probably seeing three specialists every week. We were doing blood draw every month. Obviously, that's a difficult thing as a parent to take your child in and knowing that's going to be a terrible experience monthly. So that's kind of what we're working with right now is definitely career-wise, we've been fairly successful. But on the personal side, we've been through some challenges. And how do we kind of turn that experience into something more than, oh my goodness, we dodged the bullet there. Things are working out and let's just pretend none of this ever happened and just move on like normal. It seems like there's a greater purpose there in having gone through the last six years or so. Can we totally take a step back? I'm fascinated by enlistment in July of 2001. Where were you at that time? So I had actually finished my first year at Mizzou. I'd done ROTC just kind of as like a trial because I was going to just be like a regular college kid and I guess always been like a news junkie to where, you know, I knew about Bosnia and everything in high school. I mean, that seems like a noble purpose, right? Is there are hot spots, trouble spots around the world. If the U.S. can go in and keep the peace and let people live their lives peacefully, that's a pretty good calling to a 19-year-old looking at the future. I was a second-year med student, and when we thought about assignments after residency, it was like thinking about a hardship tour in Korea for a year. None of us had any idea what was coming just a few months later. Did your life change in September? I literally heard about the towers in ROTC class. I think it was 8.30 central time, sitting around class. The instructor hadn't come in yet. And we just like the usual jokes about 
the teacher doesn't get here in the next 10 minutes, we get to leave. And then she comes in and she's like, hey, you know, I don't know if you guys saw the news this morning, but I think we're under attack and we're just going to watch the news for now. We had probably six or seven cadre who were instructors for the program. And literally within weeks, one guy was just gone. Like he'd been called up and he was an instructor and he was a lieutenant colonel and he had a serious role, but he was definitely like a very friendly guy outside of his title. To have him be pulled away two, three weeks later was the first sign. I had already had my basic training date set for January of 02. The guard was activating. So I was a medic in the guard. There was talk, I think, of you might finish AIT medic training in San Antonio in June, July, and your unit might be overseas by then. And you might just go from there straight over, which again was very different than, oh, you know, we're on these rotations to Kosovo. And this was like, when you finish training, who knows where you're going next? So I just find it so fascinating that the idea of going into it two months later, the rules have totally changed and the introduction of all kinds of uncertainty and trying to manage that uncertainty in the guard, also being an ROTC at a university too, because those two aren't necessarily compatible, right? Yeah. I mean, really, I want to say that I had a more noble thought process, but I mean, really it was, you know, you're in the guard, you're in college, the guard pays for college and one week in a month, two weeks a year. You know, I think at that point we were rotating to like Panama or something for our summer training. And it was just such a regular thing that, oh, you know, you'll go to Panama and it's a good time. And I've never been to Panama <laughs> after nine and a half years in. So you had this early experience on managing uncertainty and managing transitions at a really young age. Yeah. What I love about the conversation and what we talked about before is that right now in the middle of transitions, it doesn't look pretty. It's not rainbows and daisies. It doesn't feel great to be in the midst of uncertainty, especially as a high achiever with lots of accolades and success behind you. And I really appreciate you being here today. Can you share like focal points tend to help us. They help us with vision. They help us to continue moving forward. What's been a focal point for you? Honestly, as cliche as it is, it's been family. My personal history is I was born in Taiwan. My parents lived very comfortable kind of middle-class lives there. Because of some political unrest in the late 80s in Taiwan, my parents came here. We had some relatives here, but not anybody who could set us up comfortably. But they kind of left their lives to come here in the late 80s, early 90s. My parents ran a restaurant. They worked hard and I've got a younger brother. I think we're in a better place. We live more comfortable lives now because of the last 30 years for my parents. So that's always been the driving force. You know, as a 20-something, I love the Army. I mean, it was like a young guy in like a testosterone-filled environment, just going out there and like doing physical things and being sweaty and muddy. You know, I had two kids. And you'd probably know this more so is kind of the family stressors of the Army at war 2003 to 2010. Other people had very strong marriages and things didn't work out. You know, that was kind of the main point in 2010 was, you know, here I am coming up on my 10 years, what does the next 10 look like? And I just kind of figured there's no reason to tempt fate. Let's just cut it loose here. And since then, it's kind of been the same thing. You know, the career of insurance in New Orleans, I mean, that was kind of, it's not easy, but coming out of law school, you're expected to work 60, 80 hours a week billable, which 
becomes 120 at the office to bill for those hours. And that was deployment schedules. So I didn't want to leave the army schedule and the risk to family to then enter into a law field of the same stressors on family. I mean, people kind of turn up their nose at why would you go to law school and a pretty decent one to do insurance things. I mean, it was really kind of first and foremost about protecting the family life. Second of all, in New Orleans, bad things happen. And instead of people calling their attorney to work things out, being the insurance broker that says, hey, don't worry, we talked about this. There's money coming to get you out of this hard spot. That was a pretty good fit of managing kind of family lifestyle and actually serving a purpose that's not just billables for the sake of billables, but people are always thankful after something happens, like, oh, good, there's money coming to help with this. So that was a good feeling. I'd done some kind of student law clerking, right, where you do kind of get involved in litigation and actions. And it's just such a long, drawn out process with rarely an ideal solution that law just really didn't appeal to me at that point either. You talk about purpose, and I think that's a huge thing to hold on to and remember, especially in the midst of transitions. Can you share your purpose? As we talked about focal point and family and letting that be the driving force and seeing what fits and what's going to help bolster the family. Can you share purpose around your life, your mission, your family? So I have four kids. The oldest is a freshman now. I guess he's about to finish his freshman year. And the youngest is in kindergarten. And it really is just, you see a lot of other kids from other families. And, you know, you kind of get to see good and bad examples. And my view and my exposure has been the family income matters less than just kind of spending time with the children and modeling good behavior and good examples for them. So I think we've done a fairly good job with that. Other parents speak well of our children, and I think they're respectful. I think they're kind. I think they're generous. So despite kind of some rough spots, I think where I was in 2009, deciding to get out of the army, that goal at least has been met. I'm obviously biased, but I think my kids are pretty good kids. As you see the place of where you're at and you look forward, what do you see as the purpose that's driving wherever the next destination is? We had talked about this before. Career-wise, I'm in a pretty solid spot on kind of the insurance progression. I think it's about more than just the money. There is a purpose there. You could live a very secluded life, just working policies and language and everything else for 20, 30 years. I think it's more than an office job because, again, you meet people at the lowest points and you help out, but it is kind of an office job. We had our youngest. It was a challenge, but we see it as a blessing that my wife was actually the special education coordinator for a a very large school system. So she can kind of navigate the school portions. Not that medic training gave me insight into kind of ongoing chronic illness. I had a little bit of background there. The law background that was kind of really just kind of a curiosity. I took the three years, never really looked back. Kind of navigating my youngest's needs, that law background has actually been very helpful. Even the insurance side, because so many things come up with insurance is involved in so much of his care. Again, there's a greater purpose there as well. Special needs children come along to parents and all kind of walloped by it. But I feel like we're probably better prepared than a lot of other families. We don't know what to kind of do with that. It's hard to call it a blessing because it's definitely been a challenge. But I think we were blessed that as prepared as anybody can be, we were fairly prepared for kind of this 
challenge that came up in our lives. I'm not deeply religious, but it seems like there's a sign there of you were hit with a challenge that you were relatively prepared for. Your son is doing much, much better now. And then this COVID thing comes along and it's a time of transition for everyone. And is that a transition for us too? And I haven't figured that out. What surprises you about this journey? As cliche as it is, right? Like (laughs) in the midst of it, it's not great. Looking back, the bad parts fall away and you're appreciative of how well things work out in the end. My son was born in November of 15 and probably October 15 through June of 16, we were just completely lost, right? I mean, people would try to be helpful and they say, hey, you know, let us know how we can help. And like, you just don't know at that point, right? (laughs) You're trying to figure this out. I guess all the appointments that we had was the structure to our lives because nothing else was manageable. It was just, well, we got through this appointment. The doctor told us a bunch of things. We're going to remember as much as we can, but two days later, we've got another appointment with another specialist and they're going to tell us a bunch of things also, right? Like we were lucky in that we had a, a physician friend who could kind of interpret for us what we remembered from what this physician told us. We could go to her and she would kind of break it down for us. And, you know, whether it took 30 minutes to explain what happened or three hours to explain, she was there for us to guide us through all that. That's always the one thing that surprises me too, is that in the moment, of uncertainty or periods of transition, it doesn't feel good. But in retrospect, like there's so much to be proud of in keeping going and granting yourself grace, whatever the next step is, just taking that next step and letting that be enough. Because I think there's so much enoughness or not enoughness that comes up. I'm not doing enough. We're not getting far enough. I'm not remembering enough. Like all of these ways to pick on ourselves that seems so real and relevant in the moment, but three months or three years later, you can look back and go, that was completely unnecessary. Right. And I think part of your podcast is geared toward kind of high achievers figuring out life. And part of it is as high achievers, when you're young, you can plan for things. Law school takes three years. The initial enlistment is four years. And this is where you should be at the end of those four years. You know, life gets messier, and especially after you have kids, it gets messier much quickly. And just kind of dealing with that transition of there's no end goal for cerebral palsy, right? I mean, it's something that's chronic. At best, it stays the same. Worst case scenario, it deteriorates, and you can't plan for it. You just have to just wait and see what happens. One of the things that you and I talked about before is not having a longitudinal track. I took six years off before going to medical school. So my track is automatically different. I spent 10 years after graduating from medical school in the army and then resigned my commission, fulfilled my commitment, and now I'm on a new track. So nobody's on the same track as I am as a way to just get a sense of, am I on track or off track? Do you feel that way too? I talked about this last week was with law school and with medical school, and I guess I'll speak to the law school part. I mean, usually these are pretty driven they're adults, but these are 23-year-old kids who generally things have gone well for. I mean, they had natural talent, natural drive, but lots of people have that drive that hurdles come up along the way and they don't make it to the last day of law school. But after you graduate, and I'm sure it's true on the medical side, right? You chase the right residency and then the right fellowship. And there's a path there when you're 25, 26. Law school is the same way where if you hit all the wickets and now you're 23 with a law degree, there's a path laid out for you. I graduated when I was 31 with two kids. 
it's very hard to get on the traditional lawyering path, despite just being a seven-year difference, eight-year difference. Even looking to my peers, and I had really good friends in law school that you know I still keep in touch with to this day, but kind of their path ahead was very different than mine. Did you have to? Did you have to make peace with that? I think it was much easier. And I heard your podcast, your episode a couple of weeks back about with your husband, right? He had also the same mindset a few years apart. The army makes it very easy for you to know where you're supposed to be at what point. There's the three-year promotion schedule, six years, six years after that. I mean, that's everybody knows that. I was a 23-year-old commissionee. So, I mean, I was right on track. I knew what the Army process looked like for 20-year mark, 25-year mark. Having made an intentional decision to leave that track, I think definitely helped me kind of realize I was on this elevator escalator in the Army. I chose to leave it. I don't need to hop on the law school escalator and try to catch up. Clearly, I jumped off halfway through, and now it's pretty open what's next, but it's probably not that set promotion schedule because I'm coming in eight years late on that portion. I've had to make peace with every transition, including the transition to start my own business. Because when I look around, I didn't see other people doing it, or I didn't see very many people doing it. It's surprising to me how much guilt goes along with it. I thought when I went to medical school, I had a terminal career. I'm going to be a doctor till the day I die. That's how we're going to have an income. That's our life. And it turns out that's just not the case. I really appreciate how much the culture has changed and grown so that there isn't a belief that this is the only thing you do or the only thing you can do. But it's still funny just thinking about that. I think I've had two terminal careers, right? The army and then in law school, I just kind of figured... You do your time, you pass your tests, and three years later, you're on this other path and realize pretty quickly that in the first year, second year, that I really didn't have a desire to get into kind of that other career path and just kind of ride that moving sidewalk along. What I hear you saying is that you have been collecting all kinds of experiences without necessarily knowing what they're going to add up to, but having a sense that there is going to be a greater purpose or a greater ability to share with others what those experiences have amounted to? What are your thoughts? Yeah, for sure. Because again, I would think very few people go into law school thinking that they're going to end up doing kind of insurance things for businesses and whatever. I was kind of dragged kicking and screaming. I had a couple really good mentors who happened to be also veterans in the New Orleans community. One guy was the general counsel for Lockheed Martin. So he had done the law thing he was right down the path of the law thing to have worked out of law school as general counsel for, I mean, this was the 70s, 80s. I mean, Lockheed Martin was at the very, very top of its game. And he said, hey, I've gone down that road. I don't know that I would do it again. I don't know that that's the road you want to take anyway. You should kind of look into this insurance thing. And I just kind of thought, well, you know, like that's not what law school's for. Like That's not why I'm here. And kind of got dragged kicking and screaming into it, ended up liking it. But it was always apart from my family life, right? It didn't matter what I did. When I came home, I was dad to the kids and our bills were paid. And I don't think they ever really knew what I did at work. And then my youngest comes along and insurance becomes such a more integral, unavoidable part of our lives where I'm not my own client, but definitely I'm reading through our health insurance policies and I'm reading through the coding that we're being billed for. And I'm calling insurance companies to say, hey, you know, I think there's an error here. And I mean, this is fairly deep medical details of those diagnoses takes a medical degree 
to really get the nuances of them. And I'm on the phone with nothing against customer service, but you know, I don't know what I'm talking about. They don't know about what the medical necessity and diagnoses and all of this means. And we're trying to work it out. But having that background, being able to speak that language was helpful just solving our own issues. I was very thankful at that point about having that background and knowing the terminology. But in 2012, I didn't go into the insurance world to prepare for my own kid having like a very high medical need three years later, four years later. So yeah, it was just a random experience that turned out to be exactly the right experience for that time. Can you share some of the unexpected learnings in the process when it pertained to your son? One thing that seems like such a small thing, but made such a big difference was cerebral palsy. You don't get cured from it. You maintain mobility through a lot of therapy, but there is no end, right? I mean, the therapy is to maintain. And if you stop, things start deteriorating. So I was with a very large corporation and we had a pretty good health insurance plan, but I think our PT, our physical therapy sessions were capped out at I think 30 sessions a year. And our occupational therapy OT sessions, I think we're capped out at like 12 or 15. Medically, we were supposed to have two and two. So twice a week of PT and OT, which twice a week starting January, you very quickly run up against 15 and 30 a year limits. And when we heard that, we were you know trying to make just kind of something understandable, but maybe a little bit not the norm, right? We're trying to make deals with our PT, right? Can we just pay you cash? Come to our house. We'll promise never to sue you for malpractice, but please come to our house. We're going to run into our 30 a year limit by week two, week three. So she doesn't really like know a lot about insurance either. So she's, yeah, I mean, I like you guys, your son's making progress. We don't want to stop this. She was willing to sacrifice her income to work for a lesser rate with us. And we we're just trying to make deals. We had a friend who worked for a non-hospital PTOT organization. And she was saying the same thing, like, well, I'll just slot you in whenever we have a cancellation and we'll figure it out. And it was like a completely random conversation with the insurance patient advocate representative that we realized that rehabilitative care is how PT and OT is normally scheduled. Rehab as in you're getting back, like after an accident, you need PT to get back to where you were. But because my son has cerebral palsy, he's not injured and trying to get back to where he was. He's trying to maintain where he's been. And that's called habilitative care, not rehabilitative. And the patient advocate just said, oh, I think this is actually habilitative care. And if that's the case, there's actually no limit on the insurance plan for OTPT as long as there's you know, a medical necessity that justifies it. It's a two-letter difference. And... I don't think she realized what it all meant. I don't even know what kind of phone calls she gets as a patient advocate for an insurance company throughout her day. It must just run the gamut of any number of medical maladies. So she just kind of threw that out to us like, hey, you might want to look into this. I think it matters. And in the midst of trying everything else, we called our PT and the physical medicine physician. And we said, hey, what this patient advocate with not real medical background told us seems to make sense. What do you think? And the PT was like, yeah, James, of course, this is habilitative care. This is what it's always been. This is what it always should have been. Are you telling me that changing the code on this changes all the months and weeks of stress? I mean, she was involved in kind of trying to solve this challenge herself. It's a matter of changing the code and calling it what it always has been solves the last weeks and months of trying to figure something out. 
And such a small thing, but I don't know that we would have stumbled on that, but for Katie's background in special education and my background in insurance, to talk to that right person at the right time and realize, oh, this actually means something. We should take this up with somebody else. We were very blessed that our physical therapist was willing to work with us and was very engaged, not to disparage kind of medical coding people, right? So she works in a hospital system. So she had a coding department and we had to struggle with them to say, hey, whatever you've been coding this as, you shouldn't because most of her cases were rehabilitative. You know, for us to call up a medical coding specialist to say, hey, I can't tell you what to do, but I think you're coding it wrong. And no, I have no background in coding, but I think you're doing it wrong. It was a difficult conversation to have. And luckily for us, our medical providers were very helpful in working through the hospital bureaucracy of all of that. Again, such a small thing, just two letters. I mean, changed the last two years of our lives. It's amazing. And it's something that despite however much coding training I've had, it still is this foreign concept and foreign land. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to this day, I'm still just flabbergasted that if you think about like the number of like advanced degrees between like our DPT and multiple MDs and us to try to solve this problem that was like a tiny coding change would have gotten all of these advanced degrees to save months of their time. So. so the value of questions and asking the higher level questions, but you never know what's a higher level question until you get an answer that's helpful. The patient advocate kind of just threw it out there. It's like, oh, you know, it's worth looking into. Because I think we were calling about a claim. Like, hey, this claim that happened probably wasn't even OTPT related. We we're calling about that. I think she was very friendly on the phone and said, well, hey, you know, now that the reason we called is resolved, We've got this other problem. What do you think? Just as an end of the call, it's worth a shot. I'm going to throw that out there and see what happens. And she gave us kind of an off the cuff, hey, it's worth looking into. Hope we solved your problems. Goodbye. At this point, two years later, it's the last two minutes of that call that I remember. I don't even remember what the main purpose of that call was. So I don't know that we had a plan. We just asked the right questions. We'll get the right answers. Each time that I've had the good fortune to talk with you, I really appreciate your humility and your gratitude. And I want to ask you a question that's going to nudge that in the sense of, I think your default is going to be towards humility and gratitude. <laughs> it's easy to lose sight of who we are in the midst of transition when the achievements aren't there. How do you see yourself as the hero who's on a mission to keep going during that time? I think it is just kind of following my parents' example. You know, a lot of people are chasing career accolades, they're chasing income. And I think my parents, they left that to kind of do better for their kids. Growing up in small town, Missouri, running a Chinese restaurant <laughs> is not the easiest thing. It's not the path <laughs> to wealth and riches. I don't think I knew that I was in a poor family until it was time to apply for college. And on the FAFSA, you check the box for income that's like, Fifty to one hundred thousand dollars a year income, a hundred to two hundred income, and then it's like twenty five thousand and below. And I'm like, I think we're the twenty five thousand and below. And you circle down, you're like, oh, wait a minute, this is what society looks like with these tiers and these cutoffs, and our entire family of four fits into that lowest tier. And you just kind of realize that I thought I lived a pretty normal life, but my parents really struggled to get us to that college application. You know, you could live a fairly comfortable life. As an army officer, doing what you're supposed to do, you get deployed, you get hazard pay, you squirrel that away. And that's definitely as a 
mid-level captain with prior enlisted service, we could have had a comfortable life. And I just realized that for family, that wasn't probably going to be sustainable. Same with law school is you do all the right things. You do what's asked of you. There's a six figure paycheck right out the door, but I knew what it took to get there. And I just didn't want to put the family at risk. So yeah, that's kind of always been the driving force. And again, I don't know that I've been terribly successful career-wise, but we've been very fortunate. But I think if the goal of the career is to sustain the family, we've been extremely, extremely successful, wildly successful in that. I'm almost 40 now, and I think we still just default to our parents as role models as if I was five or six years old. And I think it is just kind of chasing the example that they had said, and I feel like we're doing okay on that scale. As you look ahead and you think about where you want to invest time, invest energy when it comes to work or career, what draws you just from a bigger picture? I do want it to be fulfilling. We want the kids to have the experiences that the world offers, which I feel like I missed out on. Through the Army, I got to see not just overseas, but Yuma, Arizona, right? <laughs> like, El Paso, Texas. You do see there's a lot more of the world out there. And we did not have that luxury when we were young. It was work, work, work for my parents and go to school. So I want to have a career that allows them to have not whatever, right? Weeks long trips to Europe, staying in the finest hotels and whatever. But it is kind of seeing kind of more what the world offers. That's not our little suburb of Houston. But how do I find that balance between work that fulfills kind of family goals but also not being so tangled up in work. My oldest is going to be a sophomore. So that time is coming to an end very quickly for us also. So how to balance, right? The 24 hours a day for the next three, four years to do both of those things. I feel like we've been fairly successful in that. And also for the kids to kind of know that it's not just work for work's sake. I mean, I think they have seen that, you know, working in Louisiana last year, 2020, Louisiana got hit with two hurricanes. They got hit with another one this year. There were friends and clients from New Orleans that still called me last year after I've been out of New Orleans for two or three years. And I think my kids realized like, hey, you know, it's nine o'clock at night. Somebody from New Orleans is calling dad. The hurricane just hit. Career-wise, that's no longer client. It's after nine. I really don't owe any obligation, but Whatever their work is, whether it's physicians or lawyers or restaurants or whatever, they're at a low point in their life where they're calling dad at nine on a Thursday night after the hurricane hit on Tuesday. I want them to see that it's not just, oh, insurance is commercials and the gecko and all of this. It's like the commercials make it seem much lighter than it is, but people are calling because they're desperate for help. Somehow I want them to see the connection of we want you to be good people and generous and helpful. And while we might roll our eyes and like, oh, what's this insurance thing? It's just like fluff on TV. They do see the example of people are calling you. I mean, that nine o'clock call is what the work requires. And it definitely takes away from the family life. I'm still kind of trying to find the right balance of how to get those two to mesh as seamlessly as possible. Sure. Because the phone call is based on trust and loyalty and relationships. I haven't seen my PCP for probably four years, right? They don't call you when life is going wonderfully for them. You want to be the person that would be on the other end of the line when you're in that position yourself, right? So I'm trying to balance that still eight years, nine years in. For me, it's a daily basis. So I, <laughs> I had a patient recently in the hospital that needed transfer 
And as a hospitalist, we have start time and stop time. But as someone who is in the army, it doesn't start and stop. There's duty and loyalty and there's responsibility. And this is my patient. And of course, this patient is going to get what they need. And it's going to bleed over into other things. And what I look at is from a spiritual perspective, which is there's a reason that I am in this patient's life at this point in time. I'm called to be here. And what is my duty in that calling? It's to really answer it to the best of my ability, which means some other things get let go in the moment. But then there are times when those other things, that is the calling and that is the duty. And that's what I want to fulfill. So it's looking at the purpose and meaning on an individual basis, on a daily basis. And for me, that's where fulfillment is found. I think that's where the post-COVID life looks like. I've just picked up a lot from having kind of my special needs child and having navigated the last five or six years. And I feel like that can be helpful too, because we wanted to have somebody say, hey, this is all over in the NICU the day after birth. But we've been down this road. If things go correctly, or even with some bumps in the road, this is what three years looks like, five years looks like, 10 years looks like. And I don't know, we're not trying to offer all the answers, but even somebody with imperfect answers would have just been so helpful to us six years ago. And I don't know that there's necessarily a career in it, but I don't know what that challenge means for us, right? Again, I see the sign there, but I don't know what to do with that. If you had to pick a small handful of values that you live by, what are they? I think it is just generosity and gratitude. I'm not going to hide it, right? I mean, I think I've been relatively successful as a student and being a good student leads to certain benefits and privileges. But with that, how do you help others, right? And I think that's definitely checked that box for me and now raising my kids to see it that way. Because I mean, they live generally privileged lives. I mean, they're in like a middle-class neighborhood in suburban Houston and whatever a major city offers is 30 minutes away. And we still live in like a very community feel. It is now Thursday, but yesterday, the 23rd of December, all the other families were on break. And we had kids out in our street, you know, riding their power wheels, sharing each other's power wheels. We had like tables out in the driveway and every family had baked cookies and brought all kinds of frosting. And it's like a super idyllic middle-class life of on what's normally a work day, our kids and families are just out there in our street, just making memories for the holidays. And I get how blessed we are. I don't want to start a whole (laughs) other line of questions, but I personally have come a long way. My parents were not taking Wednesdays off because Christmas was four days from now. And we definitely had help along the way. And I can think back on people along the way, even in small town, Missouri, that Whether they had a lot or a little to give, they gave fully. And that set us on this path today. And I want my kids to see that as well. It's getting harder. And I don't know if it's because of time or because of setting for people to have kind of the interaction. I mean, again, from the time I was seven and 11 and 13, I can still think of people who have likely passed by now in just like a small town in the Midwest that changed the course of our lives. And I want my kids, if they have that ability to be willing to do that also, and to recognize that they have the ability to really help others as well. Thinking about the common themes of navigating transitions, it sounds like staying anchored. So for you being anchored to your family, your parents, the lessons they taught, the hard work ethic, the creating a better life, being anchored to service. 
being anchored to gratitude and generosity. What else would you like to add? It just came to me as you were asking the last question that that's kind of what I thought the army would be also, right? Is like Americans in the 1990s, we hold a very privileged position and we're well-resourced and we can help Europe after the breakdown. I think that's always been the drive, right? Like that's what I signed up for is through the blessings and the hard work and gifts of my parents, how do we help others? And I think I found it to an extent in the army. I found it in insurance. I found it in the midst of everything that was going on with my youngest. I think that's kind of always been the grounding force is, you know, take care of yourself because you have kids and you're responsible for them too. But how do you take time aside to kind of pull someone else up also? So there are many listeners who are undergoing some type of transition or who are in the wilderness and can't see the destination, but are far away from their comfort zone. What do you want to say to them? I am right there with you. I don't know that I have the answer. In pre-roll, we talked about it, right? Like in the midst of it all, I can take a step back and understand that instead of just always having to chase this next thing because everything falls apart if you don't hit the next thing, having the privilege to take a step back or jump off and see what else is out there, it's a challenge, but I think I can appreciate it as a privilege also. And I'm right in the middle of it all as well. Three months from now, when we have this conversation again, I don't know where I'll be. Maybe the same place, maybe different. I don't know. Here's what I will say. You have so much to be proud of. And I say that to you, James, and I say that to every listener. You have so much to be proud of because it's not what you do that makes who you are. It's who you are that is creating both today and creating the future. And there's so much meaning and purpose and value to your life. And lots of encouragement to see that who you are is absolutely amazing. For you, as a husband, a father, as someone who serves society, past, present, and also in the future, there's just awesome. I really appreciate this podcast. I mean, I less so now, but even just a lot of commuting time. We know Justin Harvey together. And I mean, even his episode was just so much more about financial planning isn't just to rack up the numbers for retirement, there's life to be lived during. And if that includes a transition, then you build in the financial implications of a transition. So glad to share this journey with you. I am sending you so much love. Ciao. Create clarity and simplicity with all of your marketing so that the people you serve know how you can help them. As a StoryBrand certified guide, I help physicians create this to launch or grow any type of business. Sign up for a consult call with me at georgemdcoaching.com.